Amen. Well, good morning. Welcome, Risen Church. How's everyone doing this morning? Oh, one of us. Great. Very good. Well, uh, Raji, thank you so much for reading. Uh, I think Zach gave you the wrong verses. So uh, you, were, you started reading, and I was like, that's not the verses I'm preaching on. So I started panicking. You probably noticed me talking to Zach. And I was like, what's going on here? Am I in the wrong place? Or is she reading the wrong? And Zach's like, I don't know. I think I messed up. So uh, I'm just blaming it on Zach. It was probably my fault. Uh, Raji, I didn't want to interrupt you mid-reading, uh, but it's like, it's the word of God, and the word of God is always good, all the time, so we just heard a little bit extra, amen? Okay, so uh, we're going to be in Luke 7, uh, and I'm going to read uh, some more of the scripture, because I'm going to set the framework, because that's not the framework I'm working with this morning, so uh, we're going to get an extra dose of the reading of God's word. Here we are. Jesus has just finished the Sermon on the Mount. If you remember the last few weeks that we've uh, been completing the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, and he's entering into a new city, Capernaum. And Luke 7, 1 through 17 says this. After he'd finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. And a centurion who had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one who has built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent his friends to him, saying, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume you come I do not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that had followed him, he said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. Soon after, he went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. And as they drew near to the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a considerable crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And he said to her, do not weep. And then he came up and touched her and touched the bear and the bears stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him to his mother and fear seized all of them. And they glorified God saying, a great prophet has arisen among us. And God has visited his people. And the report about him spread throughout the whole of Judea and all of the surrounding country. We pray with me, Lord, we thank you for your holy and inspired word. Would you give us clarity and insight? Would you uh, take our hearts and our minds and illumine them with your truth? May we walk in step and in line with you, Lord Jesus. Would you be in our midst today as we study and look to your holy words? In Christ's name, we pray these things, amen. 
Well, if you are new with us, welcome. So thrilled that you are here with us at Risen to worship with us. Uh, We've been walking our way through the Gospel of Luke, verse by verse, and we have arrived here in Luke chapter 7. Let me tell a quick story. Uh, It seems like many, many years ago now, uh, I was in college. I was a business management major, although I was always really interested in religion and philosophy. And so some of my electives, I chose to take uh, some philosophy classes for a few semesters, uh, and I did so uh, in college. And the philosophy classes dealt with world religions. They dealt with uh, how different worldviews and how different people groups and how different places in the world and different religious institutions and different religious worldviews dealt with the idea and the problem really of sickness and suffering and death. And so they walked through all these different things. It was very interesting class. Uh, Some of it was... Uh, fascinating, some of it was creepy, some of it was interesting, but ultimately as I walked through just these introductory classes, and I did more later in seminary, I was not left with a tremendous amount of hope. I was not left with a tremendous amount of hope. In fact, there was much of it that was just sad when we were struck and we're we're dealing with uh, these difficult topics. Because uh, so much of the class that dealt with these things, the the way to solve these things and all these different religious worldviews was to climb the religious ladder, so to speak, is to do really, really well in this life so that you will be rewarded in the next life, is to tip the scales, if you will, is to work hard, do the right things, and make sure you say the right things in this world so that in the next life you will be rewarded in some form or fashion. And it was downright uh, sad to many degree because we all know that none of our best efforts could ever measure up to even that which we strive to do. Um, so I didn't leave the class with a lot of answers uh, to a lot of the questions I had as a young college student. Um, I left probably with more questions. But thankfully, church, the Bible gives us the deepest answers to these deepest philosophical questions, doesn't it? In Luke chapter seven, in the text that we just heard read today, are dealing with these two topics of death and dying and sickness. Aren't you glad you came to church today, right? Amen? Um, But that's where we're headed. In fact, this a side note, I think in general, we as a culture, we, we just don't like to talk about this. Uh, I, one of the roles of church and one of the roles as a pastor and one of the roles, I heard uh, one of uh, my favorite theologians and authors uh, teach on this is that it's not just our job to uh, encourage and charge people to live well, but it's our job as pastors and ministry leaders to learn how to die well. And that's always stuck with me uh, because uh, This life is not the end for us. We have a greater hope. We have Christ. And so we don't just talk about all the good things that we get here in this life, but we would live a life that prepare us well to meet our maker one day, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Luke chapter seven is setting the stage for us. And Luke is writing this right after, right out of the gate of him teaching the Sermon on the Mount. And he meets the servant who has, or this soldier who has a servant who's on death's doorstep. And then we meet a son of a widow who has died. In these two stories, Luke is writing, and he's positioned them right here in this narrative to have us reflect on our own mortality. 
that we would be uh, faced with it, that we would have to grapple with our own mortality. Because sooner or later, every single one of us in this room will be in these situations. And Luke shows us that when it comes to death, when it comes to dying, when it comes to suffering, when it comes to sickness and sadness, even as we read in this story, we need Christ. We need Christ. And now today, in our day and age, uh, I think we sort of try to sort of dismiss the subject of death or we sort of distort it a bit. Or uh, if you swing the pendulum the other way, we become sort of creepily obsessed with it. Uh, And so there's TV shows sort of dedicated to this. I don't know if these are still popular anymore. These were just ones that were top of mind. There's shows like Six Feet Under. There's shows like The Walking Dead. There's shows like, uh, if you're really dark and twisted, uh, Dexter. There's there's all these shows shows that have this as a theme and you become obsessed with it. There's Twilight. I know that was a hundred years ago. There's the Hunger Games. It's sort of like ingrained in our culture, but we sort of twist it and we almost make it a form of entertainment. In some cases, even romantic. And so we distort it or we twist it or we bend it. But most people that I know um, just don't like the subject at all. In fact, you're probably sitting in here like, how can I get out of here as soon as possible? Like, do I have to listen to a sermon on death and dying? Yes, you're here. So if you get up and leave, we'll come find you later and make you listen to the podcast. But we just sort of, we live in a generation that sort of just avoids it. And for a generation that loves to be in control of everything, this topic seems to be just wholly avoided. Now, we have uh, made some tremendous strides in terms of our modern society with medicine and with technology and with all the advances that we have. Uh, But even with all of these wonderful advances, even with the wonderful work of doctors and researchers that have uh, pushed the limits of uh, people's, how long they can live and the quality of life that they have, which are all wonderful, good things, we have not solved this ultimate problem of death. We cannot solve it. We try to delay it. We try to mask it, but we have not been able to defeat it. It comes to the average Joe and it comes to kings and queens alike. And Luke wants us to face it here in these stories. We cannot defeat it. We even sometimes rename it to sort of trivialize it, to sort of not let it land on us on as heavy of a reality as it really is. And so we say things like, Uncle Leonard kicked the bucket, right? We just sort of uh, make a joke about it a little bit. Uh, We've learned to mask it with makeup or with surgery or the pharmaceutical industry loves to sell us a pill, but it cannot be defeated. Um, We all have this lurking fear of it. And so today, church, I want to ask you, as your pastor, do you have a philosophy of life that can cope with your death? Do you have a philosophy of life that can cope with your death? And if you are a believer in Christ today, we can humbly and gratefully say yes because of Jesus Christ. We can say yes. 
In chapter 7, we're directed to the only one and we're shown the only one who has power over sickness and death. And most see uh, chapter 7 as we take this as sort of one big unit and it bleeds on into chapter 8 that we're going to be with in the next uh, few weeks. But this particular question pops up and it's going to pop up explicitly next week. And it's the question of who is this Jesus? Who is this one Jesus? Is he the one that is to come? John the Baptist is going to ask that question. The one who we met many months ago, the forerunner, John the Baptist, that says, behold the Lamb of God, the one in whom I'm not worthy to even untie his sandals. He's come, and he, we will find him next week saying, Jesus, are you really who we thought you were? Because Jesus comes on the scene in a surprising way. And he deals with issues, and he deals with topic and people in a surprising way. And salvation is coming to people in a surprising way. And John is grappling with doubt. And so Jesus will even come to the prophet who doubts. And he comes to the sick and he comes to the dying. And we're going to see these series of encounters over the next few weeks that point us to our Savior. And we see that Jesus really is for the whole world. It, it, we're, we're going to find out over the next few weeks as we leave the Sermon on the Mount and with all these encounters with all of these people that doesn't depend on your social status that God might save you. It doesn't depend on your rank. It doesn't depend on your race. It doesn't depend on your religious resume or what you've done or what you haven't done. And no one this morning should think after walking through chapter seven of Luke This Jesus isn't for me. He hasn't come for me. And what we see in chapter seven is that faith shows up and appears in very surprising places with very surprising people. And it gives hope for all of us. The good news of the gospel is for a Gentile soldier whom we read about in this story. It is for a grieving poor widow. It is for a doubting prophet. It is for a sinful woman we'll read about later. It is for a demon-possessed woman. The good news is for those of us, church, catch this, who are out of our depth, who don't have it figured out. Um, Just like the soldier we're going to look at in depth in just a second. The good news is for those who are confronted by death like the grieving widow. The good news is for those who are troubled by crushing doubt. Is he really who he says he is? John the Baptist. The good news is those who are stricken with guilt, like the lady at the end of chapter seven. So who is this Jesus? That's the next three weeks for us, including this one, that will answer that question. And we're going to see today that Jesus is Lord over sickness and death. Two stories, they're tied together in a variety of ways. Uh, one of which the main theme here is that these two stories that in our text that I read is that Jesus has the authority. His word has the authority to heal. We just sang about it as well. There's a beloved person in trouble in the first story. It's the servant of this soldier and the second, the son of this widow. One's in the grip of death. One has already died. And there's crowds, there's great crowds observing both of these. And there's miraculous endings to both of these stories. So let's take one at a time. 
uh, the first, the healing of the soldier's servant in the first 10 verses. And Jesus here is amazed by the faith of this soldier. There's actually more about this soldier than there is even about Jesus in this story. So I think the point here that Luke is driving home is for us is where the story ends, that this soldier is a model of real faith. That real faith bubbles up in a very surprising place. And again, faith is appearing and faith is showing itself in folks that uh, should have no place or no claim to this faith. It is not found in the Israelite. It's found in a Gentile Roman soldier. And what makes this soldier's faith so wonderful, so great? Two things I'll point out that I think are notable here that Luke wants us to see is that he approaches Jesus with humility. He approaches Jesus with great humility. The first seven verses, the context for this encounter, obviously Jesus is coming down off the Sermon on the Mount. He's leaving, he's entered Capernaum, and there's this soldier, his servant is sick to the point of death. Uh, this, This servant that the soldier has was highly valued by him. So we can understand this soldier as a man of compassion, a man of caring. A centurion means that he had charge over about a hundred people. So he was an influential person in this community that he was a part of. Um, He was maybe, you could think of him as a middle ranking officer. Uh, He worked for the Romans uh, and therefore he had uh, political clout. He was influential. He was well known. And this was a particularly poor area but he was influential and he was even gracious to all the people that were under his care. The story goes uh, that he sent some people, he sent these elders to go interact with Jesus on his behalf and they communicate with Jesus that this soldier that has concern for this servant that has died, verse five, built their synagogue. Interesting point here. Now, I don't take that to mean that he physically uh, constructed it, but that he used resources or he gathered resources through his role, through maybe levying taxes over a number of years to help build the Jewish people a place to worship. He built them the synagogue and through his leadership. So he cared about the Jews. He was not hostile toward them. He seemed to be a man with a big heart. He was compassionate. He was generous. He saw the needs of the people and he helped rally funds and a project to build this thing. He was an upstanding guy in the community. However, he's faced with a problem he cannot solve here. The servant whom he loves is sick and he has no idea what to do. He doesn't want to lose him. And it's often, church, that when we find ourselves just out of our depth, not knowing what to do, not knowing how to solve a problem, that we go to Jesus in desperate need of him to work. And that's a good place to be. And it's often in these moments of desperation where we don't know what to do that we experience the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in powerful and profound ways. And so that's what happens in the life of this soldier. Now, we're not told his nationality, Uh, He's likely not Italian. He's probably Syrian, many commentators believe, a neighboring country. Uh, He's heard about Jesus. The fame of Jesus has spread. The miraculous healings of Jesus has spread. Maybe he was even a part of the crowd that was with Jesus that heard him teaching. 
But then he calls on some Jewish elders to go engage with Jesus in verse four and five. Here they are. And when they, the Jewish elders, came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him. Uh, For he loves our nation and he is the one who built us our synagogue. So he is worthy to have you heal his servant. This guy, the, the Jewish elders are pleading with Jesus on behalf of this soldier. He is worthy. You, have, you should intervene for this man. He is an upright, worthy person. He deserves your healing touch that we've heard so much about Jesus. He deserves for you to intervene for him in this problem that he cannot solve on his own. They think he is very worthy. Interestingly, what does the soldier say in verse six about himself? Lord, the soldier saying to Jesus, do not trouble yourself for I am not worthy. I am not worthy to come under your, for you to come under my roof. And here, church, we see a humility that characterizes true faith. The centurion had no doubt a lot of good things you could say about him. I mean, we've just said a few, just from observation about this text and the situation he's in. However, even the most worthy of individuals placed in front of the Lord Jesus Christ know that they are totally unworthy to even be in his presence. You and I likewise are totally unworthy because Jesus knows all things. He knows everything about us. He knew everything about this centurion soldier and the servant who is ill I mean, think about that reality. The all-knowing Christ, the one who uh, was there at creation that formed the very cosmos, the one whose hand upholds everything right now, uh, even as we sit here together, holds our very beings together. Christ is that. Read in Colossians about his power, his um, omnipotence, his, his greatness. And he knows all things and is before all things. And he knows every thought and he knows every motive of our heart. And if he were to just, he could just run them all up and down the screen. Everything we're thinking, everything we thought yesterday, everything we thought last week, and the motivations of each one of those thoughts. He knows all of these things. And if they started rolling up on the screen for each of us sitting here, we would all run out of here. We would just all leave. And we would never want to talk to each other ever again because all of our hearts are darkened and he knows all of it. And this guy understands. Real faith recognizes I come to this Jesus in great humility. I'm not even worthy to have you come inside my house, Lord. You know everything about me. The Jews say this soldier is worthy in verse four and the soldier in the presence of Christ declares, I am not worthy. And you see that over and over again. So here at the very start of this story, uh, we are faced with two different ways of approaching Jesus that we need to take note of. The very start of the story, two very different ways to approach Christ. One of them is on merit. This guy is worthy, they say. Look at all that he's done. Look at all the good things he has accomplished. He cares about his servant. He's built us our synagogue. They come to him and they they approach Jesus 
and Jesus's ability to move in his life based on the merits of his life. And the soldier approaches Jesus in a very different way. And he comes to Jesus in mercy, not on merit. I am unworthy, Lord. I am unworthy. One on merit and one on mercy. Anything you do for me, Lord, would be a gift. Now, most of the world thinks about the gospel. They think about even religion. They think about, many of us think about even Christianity as all being merit-based. This is a very normative thing because our entire world is based on merit. All of our lives primarily are based on merit. You get a great performance review at work? Great. You get promoted and you get a raise. Um, You get the good grades on the test? You get accepted into the school that you've been trying to get into. You make the shot at the game. You win that, you win that just clutch moment. You get praise and honor. You have the shiny resume with all the right things. You get the job. And a lot of people are tempted to believe and do believe that that is how the gospel works. Um, but here... Jesus is flipping the whole thing on its head. Um, And we think, if I can just sort of be in the middle, I know I'm not like the worst person in the world, and I know I'm not Mother Teresa, but if I can just sort of live in the middle, then maybe he'll be good with me. Maybe if I can tip the scales with some good things, then he'll look at me in a good way. But this story is showing us here of why this guy's faith is so exemplary is because he recognizes it is by mercy alone, by Christ alone. It is grace. He is unworthy, and Jesus is the worthy one. And Jesus sees us all the way through, and this soldier knows that. Um, In fact, if you go on in Luke, as we continue in chapter 18, there was a religious person, the Pharisee, and he prays to God and he says, "Uh, thanks be to God that I'm not like that guy, that I'm better than that guy, that tax collector. And then the tax collector looks up to heaven and he says, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, the tax collector got it right. That's how we come to Jesus, church, with humility. Secondly, verse 10, or verses eight through 10, rather, he believes in Jesus's authority. So he comes uh, with humility and he comes receiving mercy from the one who grants it. And here we see uh, he believes in Jesus's authority, eight through 10. For I too, the soldier speaking, am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes to another, come, and he comes and to my servant, do this, and he does it. The soldier knows authority. That's the one thing that he, he's lived that. He lives under authority. He gives orders and commands and his, uh, that are under his, uh, under his authority have to do those things or bad things happen. When you're a soldier and you're in combat, combat environment, if you don't obey the orders of your commanding officer, your friends could be killed. So you are one that lives under authority. You understand that. This soldier is saying, I understand that. And so what he's saying by saying this is he's saying, Jesus, I recognize that you have authority from the heavenly father. He says, I am a man under authority. I understand authority. And I know that you are a man also under authority. And when you say it, it goes because you are the son of God. 
and the soldier recognizes the divine authority of Jesus, that this one, uh, when he says it, it goes. I love how Psalm 107 says it. It says, they cried to the Lord and he delivered them from their distress. He sent out his word and he healed them. And so what's attributed to God, to Yahweh here in Psalm 107 is being attributed to Jesus Christ, to Christ here in this story. The soldier says, all you have to do is say the word. All you have to do is speak it and it will happen because your words have authority. He doesn't say, can you come to my house, please? You, we have to have like a prayer meeting and you have to be there physically. No, he just, Jesus, you just have to say it and it's done. You just have to speak it. He understands that Jesus has divine authority. He doesn't even physically have to be present to heal someone. He can say it and it will happen. He gives the word and it will happen. And after hearing this, Jesus says, I haven't seen faith like this before. That is a remarkable line. And then verse 10, the healing is actually, it feels almost like an afterthought. It's like they go to the, the house and the servant's healed. He's fine. Like the story here is not really about the person being healed. It's about the servants or it's about the soldier's faith who comes to Jesus with humility and recognizes his divine authority and believes that the word of Christ has all the power. And Jesus shows that it does. He is a model of faith and it is a very surprising place. A Gentile Roman soldier not the elders who came to Jesus right before, pleading on his behalf. Jesus says, look at this guy's faith. Um, And it's a remarkable thing how almost effortless it is for Jesus. There's not like, we see this over and over again. There's not like a seance. There's no just weirdness about it that he doesn't have to like say things over and over again. It's just, he just speaks and it happens. His word has power. And it's, it's this amazing thing. It's almost, it's, it's effortless for Christ. When his word goes out, it goes out in power and it happens. Like we are in all of this in our world. It's like if you grew up uh, in the early 90s as an NFL fan, it's like watching a Barry Sanders highlight reel. You're like, how is he doing that? How does he run like that? It's like, he's just avoiding, it's just like this amazing thing to watch. Or an old school Michael Jordan highlight reel. It's like, how does he do that? You're just in awe of the athleticism, or not to embarrass Zach here, but like, look at like the, the way the guy can play the keys, can do stuff on the iPad and, make, and sing the melodies. And the, he's just beautifully executing like a million different things all at once. And it just is beautiful and seamless. And it seems like he's not even trying. If I tried to do just one of those things, you all would all know how horrible uh, I would be at it. But when someone does it with excellence, it's a beautiful thing. And you're left in awe of it. And Christ's word goes out. And it is just a beautiful thing to watch. It just flows out of him in power. Why? Because he has all authority. And so here we have a Gentile, a centurion, a soldier coming to faith. And this is the first that we're going to see in the Gospels of a domino effect of other Gentiles, even centurions come to faith. When we get to the end at uh, chapter 23 at the cross, there's gonna be another centurion that's gonna say, truly, he is the son of God. And we get a little window here of this one. 
And then we're going to see another centurion in Acts chapter 10. Uh, Luke's second book that he writes, and it's a preview, this one here, real early in the gospel of Gentiles pouring into the kingdom of God, pouring into believing in this one Jesus who has authority. And so church, do you approach Christ with that kind of humility? And do you approach Christ knowing that his word has authority, that he can say it and it can be done? Secondly, we're gonna look at the story of Jesus raising the widow's son at the time that we have left. I will not be nearly as long on this one. Uh, and so uh, Jesus is traveling to Nain. It's about 25 miles from Capernaum. There's uh, roughly, they believe, about 200 folks that live there. Um, so we go from this influential soldier that had control over about 100 people that was this good, uh, he, he did, did good to the, these people in this town. And now we go to uh, this poor widow. She represents here what Luke is going to uh, ring the bell over and over again, that the good news will be preached to the poor. We have the poor widow. And this story, like the previous story, stresses the authority of the words of Christ, verses 11 and 12. And what's happening here as we, uh, as we kind of enter into this story is essentially uh, Jesus and his followers and the crowd that's going with them are entering into a funeral procession, right? It's, sort of, it's an ancient funeral procession. That had to have been some sight. So Jesus and all of his followers, his entourage, his disciples, and all the people that were going with him and following him because he's doing all of these incredible things are walking into this tiny little town and here they stumble upon a funeral procession coming out of the town gate. And you get the understanding as you read it that this one is especially sad. Um, and that's Okay. And that's totally acceptable. Even for faithful believers, death is sad. And it's okay to cry. It's okay to mourn. Because uh, here in this story, it's especially sad because this was this widow's one and only son that had died, which means in the ancient world, he was her one and only means of support and financial means. There's no social security. There's no retirement account for this woman. There's no pension. There's no life insurance. One commentator says, we might say her, or we might say her life had ended though her existence continued. That was, that was the reality she was facing. So it is sad. And Jesus, verse 13, enters into her sadness. Uh, and this is, so like the Lord Jesus Christ. He enters into the most agonizing day of this widow's life. Now you think about it. It's, this is the funeral procession is they're coming out of the town gate and Jesus is walking up with all of his disciples and others that are following him. And they could have just stood back like we all do when a funeral procession comes. It's coming down the road and uh, we, we kind of all get onto the side of the road and let the thing pass along. Jesus doesn't do that. Like he could have done that. But this funeral procession is coming. And can you imagine someone you observe in modern day stepping out and stopping the vehicle and going around to the hurts 
and pulling out the coffin and touching the dead body. Like this would have been like, these people probably don't know what is going on. This, is what, this would have been a very shocking moment for everyone involved and everyone observing this. There may have even been people trying to stop this random seemingly guy from doing what he was doing. A lot of times we read these and we're like, oh yeah, he's gonna, but think about what's going on here. He's stopping the funeral and he's going to the dead body and he's going to speak to it. And he tells this young man who has died, arise. And this miracle happens and he sits up and there's no expression of faith beforehand because he was dead. Because that too is the way our savior works. Nobody asked Jesus to do this. It's unlike the first story where his help is being requested. He stops and he does it. Um, Jesus blesses us immensely all the time, even when we do not ask him to. If all of our blessings only came because we prayed and requested, we would not be very blessed at all by the Lord Jesus Christ. He shows up in moments that we don't even know when to ask. We haven't even asked. We haven't even thought about asking. That is how good he is. Um, and notice what the text says in verse 13. When the Lord saw her, the widow, he had compassion on her. So Jesus not only has all authority, but he has tremendous depth of compassion. If he just had all authority and he was only authoritative, but no compassion, we would all tremble today at his authority. And we would be afraid to even ask him of anything and approach him at all. But he has authority and this story shows us he has compassion. And Luke uses this word a lot. He uses it a lot for us to understand. It's this deep this deep compassion, like his compassion goes to the very inside. His heart goes all the way out to her. He feels deeply for this widow who has lost her son. It's like Jesus weeping over Lazarus. And why is this significant to us, church? Because you and I, like this widow, will experience dark days in life. And Jesus and his compassion can shine even in those shadows. Church, you may have walked in here today uh, with deep pain. You may have walked in here wounded by someone. You may walk in here and you've experienced trauma. You are exhausted. You just kind of got dragged here or you're just hoping that he might show up in your pain Um, and he does, and he has compassion today. But you also might come in here and you think you've, you have so much pain and you've experienced so much that no one else in this room ever, you, you, you kind of, you're that one that maybe walks in and is like, everyone else in here is better than me, is in a better place than me. I'm so messed up. I'm so unworthy. I am unlike anyone else in this room. You are not unlike everyone else. All of us need the healing touch of the Lord Jesus Christ 
There is not a wound that I have that Jesus doesn't know about and that he cannot heal. He knows all of our wounds and he knows all of our pain and he knows all of our grief. And Jesus' heart shows us right here in this text, his heart and compassion goes out to those whom are suffering. His heart goes out to this widow in this tiny know-nothing town who's just lost her son and he stops the funeral and he says, get up, rise. And then he hands the lady her son. He gives him back to her. In verse 13, right before he does all this, he says, do not weep because he knows what he's about to do. Do not weep. And then he raises this guy to life. And notice it says the man sat up and he spoke. Can you imagine being at this funeral? He sits up and he's presumably totally healed. Now Luke doesn't answer the question that all of us really want to know. What did he say? We don't know. And I'm not even going to try to speculate. We don't know what he says, but we know he gives him back to his mother another display of his compassion. Um, And Jesus here is showing us, or Luke rather is showing us that even death is within the reach of Jesus's power. Death doesn't put you out of the reach of Jesus. It doesn't put you out of the reach of his power. Paul says says it can't separate you from his love. And so this miracle that we, that we read here in Luke 7 is a preview of what is to come for all of us. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16 tells us, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command with his voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And listen, it says this, And the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise Just like he said here, rise, the dead in Christ, those who have faith in the authority and compassion and love of Jesus, we will rise in Christ. Death doesn't keep us from being united in Christ. If you are united in Christ in salvation, when you die, nothing can separate you from his love. Though you're dead, you are still united to him. And this story shows us what will happen. Not only will we rise, but we will be reunited with our believers, brothers and sisters. As one commentator said, Jesus did here for the widowed mother and son that soon he will do one day for all the faithful in perfect and final form. That's our hope. He will bring forth comfort He will raise all of his people in incorruptibility. He will reunite us in the heavenly realm with our loved ones who have died in him. And now the question at the very end here that maybe you're asking, as we read about Jesus raising this one from the dead, we're gonna read about two other accounts of Jesus raising uh, folks from the dead. Why doesn't he just do that now? Why doesn't he raise us all now? Why do we have to experience death and pain and all these things? Why does he only do it three times that are recorded? Well, he doesn't do it now for the same reason he doesn't do it all through the gospels, only these select kind of moments that we get to read about, these cases that happen, those three. He doesn't do it over and over again now because the time is not yet. 
but soon it will be, friends. And that's our hope. As Christians, our hope is resurrection. Soon we all will hear the words of Christ. Arise, Zach. Arise, get up, Julia. Arise, John. Resurrection. We're a resurrection people, not just on Easter, but every day of our human experience. Our hope is in resurrection. That's what we stake our hope in. And Jesus in these stories is showing us our future hope that all of us will experience if we are found and united in Christ through faith, that his words will come to all of us and death will not be the end for us. He will say, arise, and we will live with him in incorruptibility. What's the result of all of this? Verse 17, therefore the word spreads about Jesus. These stories, these two remarkable stories is Jesus is Lord over death. He's Lord over disease. He is the compassionate one who enters into our grief. He enters into our agony. And these miracles, church, are previews of things to come for us. One day our great hope is there will be no more sickness. There will be no more pain. There will be no more funerals. There will be no more weeping. We will be raised in resurrection life in an immortal body fitted for a new creation. That is our hope in Christ. He alone is the answer to death and dying. He has won the battle. Our risen Christ right now He has won the battle over the great enemies of Satan and sin and even death itself. And so church, today, if you are in here and you are not a Christian, um, we don't point you to ourselves. We don't point you to any single person in this room. We point you to Christ. He is the savior that you need. Embrace him as Lord and Savior. He conquered death and all who are found in faith with him will be raised to resurrection life. Embrace him as your Savior if you never have. Do not think you're out of his redemptive reach. These two stories are meant to show us that faith shows up in these surprising places and no one is outside of his redemptive reach. No one. Um. This whole chapter is saying Christ is for you. Grace is found in the most surprising of places. Give your life to Christ. Believe on him. Place your faith and trust in him, our risen Lord. And if you're a Christian today, um, let your heart swell with gladness because we have much to celebrate. Yes, there's a lot of things to grieve. Yes, these are heavy things that we have walked through. But Jesus has made clear here that he has solved our greatest problem, that he is the solution to sickness, to pain, to suffering, and even death itself. And so we as believers found in him, a resurrection people can rejoice in Christ today and every day until we see him face to face. Amen? So praise be to God for that reality. Church, let's pray together as the band comes back up. Lord, thank you for your word. God, thank you that Jesus came. That he did for us what we could never do for ourselves. That his word has authority. That his word has power. 
that he has power over sickness and over death itself, that should we just place our trust in him, we no longer have to fear our greatest enemy because he has conquered it all for us. And so God, today, if there's anyone in this room, would you stir by your Holy Spirit as only you can, if they've never placed their faith in you, Lord, would they come to you, Lord Jesus? Would you save? Would you bring salvation as only you can do to those in this room that have not trusted you in faith? And would they have a great hope knowing that their eternity is secure in the one who's done it all, the one who has authority and compassion. And Lord, for those of us that have walked with you for many years, would you remind us and would you fill our hearts with rejoicing knowing that we love and worship a savior who has secured for us our eternal hope and our eternal home. And so Lord, make us a people of rejoicing. Make us a people of gladness even when sorrow comes because we know Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. We pray in his name, amen. Church, will you stand and worship with us this morning?